Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that You would bless us in the furtherance of our worship. We pray that You would be with other faithful men who stand to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. We pray, our God, that You would bless the Gospel to go forth. Bring revival. Nothing is impossible with You. To cause people to bow down before You. To give reverence and attention to Your Word. To love it. But more importantly, to love You. For if they love You, they will love Your Word. We know that we live in troublesome times. We know not how long we shall be on this earth. But we pray that You would give us all a sound mind to be able to read and think and worship You with a conscious awareness of Your presence. May we live our every waking moment with a conscious awareness of Your presence. That it is with You that we live, in You that we live and move and have our being. And that it is with You that we have to deal. We thank You that our righteousness is in another that is in Your darling Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, we ask that You would be with us as we endeavor to study Your Word. And it is in Christ we pray. Amen. We begin today looking at uh, the first epistle of John. Lord willing, we will endeavor to preach through this. Uh, John is a very difficult book in one sense. It's a very soul-searching book in another. Arthur Peek as some of you may know, wrote uh, a book on the Gospel of John. It was around 1,500 pages. And he made this statement with regard to uh, the first epistle of John. He said, 
When we completed our 1,500-page exposition of John's Gospel more than 20 years ago, we were urged to take up the first epistle of John, but felt quite incompetent to engage in it. The closing books of the New Testament, as their position indicates, require their expositor to possess a fuller knowledge of God's Word and a more mature spiritual experience than do the earlier ones. The style of John's epistle is quite different from that of the other apostles, being more abstract and for that reason more difficult of apprehension and elucidation. We still feel very unfit for the task upon which we are now entering, but if we wait until we deem ourselves spiritually qualified, it will never be assayed. And Pink died while he was going through this book. He never did finish it. Uh, I think it's, I've got a a little book about that thick of his exposition, but uh, it doesn't go all the way through. When I first read that years ago, uh, what Pink said about First John, I thought, well, if he uh, come to the end of his life and he had reservations about taking up First John, who am I? But then, uh, years ago, in preaching uh, through a, a series of sermons on knowing God, which uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, really inspired me to preach those sermons, uh, I preached quite a bit out of 1 John at that time. And I think you will see why as we uh, go further into it. And like Pink, uh, I really don't deem myself qualified uh, not only to go through 1 John any more than I do any other book. As you know, we just finished the book of Galatians, and I assure you that I could go back through Galatians and uh, preach as many sermons as I did in it and still not cover everything and not cover what I covered before. So, uh, that's the beauty of the Word of the Lord. It is quite teeming with information and the things of God. Uh, Pink also said, Not only is John's epistle much more difficult than his gospel and the other apostolic writings, but it does not lend itself so readily to expositions of equal length. I don't know that any uh, book does, really. But anyway, some of its contents afford much more scope to a sermonizer than do others. And thus, while a whole article may be proficiently devoted to, to certain single verses, 
Others require to be grouped together, and because of this, the reader is likely to be disappointed at the varying lengths of their treatment. It is perhaps for these reasons that comparatively little has been written upon this epistle. Scarcely anything during the past 50 years. So far as we know, none of the Puritans attempted a systematic exposition of the same. For a man by the name of Hardy, uh, scarcely comes under that category. I didn't put down his first name, it's initially is in, but anyway, I did look him up and he lived in the 1665. Yet this portion of God's Word is equally necessary, important, and valuable for His children as are all others, though what they are likely to get out of it will largely depend upon their acquaintance with all preceding books and with the constancy and intimacy of their communion with the triune God. I want to, at this time, read the first chapter, though uh, we will not get into looking at it expositionally because we are devoting uh, our time now to the introduction of the book overall, but I do want to read the first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Notice it said that it gives the the writer of this epistle as John, 
And this is generally believed to be that John wrote it and, and his style is so clearly aligned with the gospel that goes by the name of John. And this, the fact that both men wrote this uh, it seems to be quite evident to me. I'm going to read a lengthy quote again from James Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible regarding John being the author of this book that gives a little bit of the uh, historical background. We could have given several, but I think this one would be sufficient. It is not questioned that considerably before the close of the second century, the four Gospels, substantially as we have them, were accepted as authoritative in the Christian church. This is proved by the testimony of Irenaeus. He was bishop, Irenaeus was bishop of Lyons in Gaul, and he wrote around 180 A.D. Also is proven by the testimony of Theophilus, who was bishop of Antioch, that was around 170 A.D., and Clement of Alexander around 190 A.D., and then during that same time, toward the end of the century, Tertullian, he was an eloquent uh, uh, man from uh, Africa who wrote at the end of the century and who quotes freely from all the Gospels by name. In other words, you see how quickly and how early these books were accepted. The full and explicit evidence of the Muratorian canon may be dated about 180 A.D. Now for the Muratorian canon, I'll inter uh, interrupt here or put in this parenthesis. It's called the Muratorian fragment and it's also called the Mur Muratorian canon. And it's a copy of perhaps the oldest known list of most of the books of the New Testament. The fragment consists of 85 lines, is a 7th century Latin manuscript bound in a 7th or 8th century codex from the library of uh, Columbanus' monastery at, at Bobbio Abbey. It contains features suggesting it is a translation from Greek original written about 170 or as late as the 4th century. Both, both, both degraded conditions of the manuscript and the poor Latin in which it was written have made it difficult to translate. The beginning of the fragments is missing and the end abruptly. The fragment consists of all that remains of a section of a list of all the works that were accepted as canonical 
by the congregations known to its original compiler. And so Hastings in his definition, uh, talking about this, talks about that not only did Arrhenius, Theophilus, uh, Clement, Tertullian, but also the Muratorian Canon, which were early writings around before 200 A.D., all uh, accept uh, these, this and particularly John. Irenaeus assumes the Johnine authorship of the fourth gospel as generally accepted and unquestioned. You know, people try to say, well, it took uh, three and four and five hundred years before we had the canon or the listing of the scriptures. That's not true. That's not true. The early saints accepted this. and But anyway, I don't want to chase that rabbit. Uh, he, that is Irenaeus, expressly states that after the publication of the other three Gospels, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned upon his breast, himself also published the Gospel while he was dwelling at Ephesus in Asia. That was a quote by Irenaeus. He, that is Irenaeus, tells us that he himself, when a boy, had heard from the lips of Polycarp his reminiscence of his familiar intercourse with John. In other words, Polycarp was alive when John was alive and talked to John. And Arrhenius heard Polycarp talk about his uh, conversations uh, with John. I'll start that one again. He tells us that he himself, when the boy heard from the lips of Polycarp his reminiscence of his, quote, familiar intercourse with John and the rest of those that had seen the Lord, end of quote. So I think uh, it's pretty well established that John wrote this epistle, and I don't even know of modern so-called critics that would even question this, this. And that the John that wrote this epistle is the same John that wrote the gospel. He is identified as the disciple that Jesus loved and that other disciple. Let's look at these uh, few uh, things from the gospel. Look in John 21. John chapter 21. This is kindly a, an overview we're going to look at John a little more in detail here in just a moment. In John 21, beginning at verse 20, this is after the Lord had told Peter upon one, uh, to follow him, to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs. But in verse 20, John 21, 20, Then Peter, 
turning about, seeing seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus said unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren, that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him that he shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? This is the disciple which testifieth of these things. In other words, the writer of this gospel is saying that the one, I'm the one that testifies of these things, and I'm the one that was leaning on Jesus' breast, and I'm, in other words, uh, he never identifies himself personally, but it's always secondhand. This is the disciple which testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, I'm going to interject something here where John said, we know his testimony is true. We're going to see when we get further into 1 John that the writer of 1 John uses the word know over 30 times in this little short epistle. We know. We know. In other words, as Peter would say in his epistle, his epistle we're not talking about cunningly devised fables. We're, we're speaking the truth. We're speaking the truth. And I tell you, in a day in which we live, when just about everybody wants to question the Bible, we need to be confident of the truth of the Scriptures. But anyway, John, in verse 24 says, And we know that this testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Notice in the 19th chapter of John, the Gospel, in verse 35, he said, and he that saw it, in other words, John said, whoever saw this, bear record that his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith, that he saith true, that ye might believe. In other words, John is saying again, I'm the one that's writing these things, and I'm telling you what I'm writing is true. It is true. 
Now John was at the Lord's Supper. John 13, the same one that was leaning on Jesus' breast, this other disciple was at the Lord's Supper in John 13, 23-25. Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. Sounds like the last chapter, does it not? Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? This disciple was also entrusted by the Lord Jesus Christ, Mary. Look in John 19. John nineteen twenty six. <clears throat> when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. He spoke of himself as the other disciple also. In John chapter 18. Not only is the one that Jesus loved, the one that was on his breast, but look in John 18, verses 15 through 16. First of all, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest. We'll come back to that verse later. And went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. So you can see here that that other, other disciple is believed to be John. Now keep in mind, and we're going to uh, nail this down a little bit more as we go on, but just think about it. The Apostle John was kin and familiar with the high priest. All right? Also in John 20, John chapter 20, I'll start in verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. 
Then she runneth and cometh to Peter and to the other disciple, believing to be John, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, this much we know at least, whoever wrote the Gospel of John is the one that Jesus loved. He said he was the one that did the writing in the 21st. But anyway, and it's generally believed that it was John, whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Verse 6 tells us that Peter went into the sepulcher. So Peter and John went to the sepulcher. And it is believed by some that this is the other disciple that's mentioned in John chapter 1. Let's look at John chapter 1 for just a moment. We cannot say whether it was or whether it wasn't, but we're going to look at John 1 verses 37 through 40. And if this is the same person, then it would kindly identify the beginning of John's discipleship. And I say if. You know, some believe that. I, I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying what some say, which it could be. But anyway, John chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 37. And the two disciples, well, let's just go back to Verse 35. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two, two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwelleth thou? And he saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two, which heard John speak, and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now it doesn't say who the other one was, some just thinks that the other one was John because all through the gospel, John never referred to himself and called himself by name. He was always just that other disciple, that other disciple, or the one that leaned on Jesus' breast. And therefore, who's this other disciple? Well, some think thinks this other disciple might have been John. And you say, well, uh, why would Andrew be mentioned? Well, as we're fixing to see, 
John and Andrew were in, uh, they were in business together. And we need to keep that in mind. But we do know without question that John wrote the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Verse 4 John to the seven congregations which are in Asia. And then again in verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So that's just kindly a brief overview of this other disciple, this one that Jesus loved, This one that we identify as John. Now let's look at John a little bit. First of all, we want to look at John's lineage. John's brother was James and their father was Zebedee. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. I've got other parallel passages here that say the same thing. I'll just give you the one, unless you want to write Mark 1, 16 through 20. But Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. In Luke chapter 5, In verse 11, we see that they were in business together, that is, these disciples. Luke chapter 5 and verse 11. Well, we'll have to get some of the context.
We'll start in verse 8. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished in all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon, and said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. So you can see that James and John and uh, Peter and Andrew were partners in the fishing industry. They had a close relationship. And also in Mark chapter 1, we have another bit of detail. In verse 20, And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. So you can see in this that uh, Zebedee not only had his sons working with him, but that he had hired servants. So you can see the fishing industry here. Uh, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they were all partners together, and they had servants. So this was, this was not just a, a, a couple of men in a boat. This was a whole fishing industry. This was their lifelong occupation. And I'm not going to run down that rabbit trail, but I'll just point this out. Just think about it. If God had called you uh, to serve Him, that you left your lifelong occupation. That was giving up a lot. That was giving up a lot. That's giving up not only living with Father, not only working with Father, but giving up the inheritance of the boats and the hired help to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So, James and John and Peter and Andrew were not only in working together, very likely they were cousins. Very likely they were cousins. In fact, it's believed that uh, John's mother was Salome, and she was the sister to Mary, the mother of our Lord. Now let's look at some verses regarding that. Matthew 27. I hope you can appreciate this uh, summary of putting together for you several hours of study. <laughs> Matthew 27, 
Oh, I'm looking at the wrong thing. Matthew, uh, verse 56. These were the men, women that were following the Lord. Verse 56, among which was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Josie, and the mother of Zebedee's children. So, <clears throat> Also in Mark chapter 15. Verse 40. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less, and of Josie, and Salome. In other words, this Salome would be the one that was the mother of James, uh, James and John. And then in the 16th chapter of Mark, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. What I'm wanting to show is that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less or the, or the mother of Christ was uh, a different Mary from Salome. Alright? And then in John 19... John nineteen twenty five. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. It's believed that his mother and his mother's sister is Salome because we see Salome mentioned with the other list and it's not likely that Mary had a sister named Mary and so we have to try to keep all that together so Salome is mentioned with Mary the mother of Jesus and with Mary Magdalene in the midst, in the list in Matthew and Mark, and in John nineteen twenty five, she uh, she is meant regarding Mary's sister. It's, it, some thinks that, but it's it, not likely that they, Mary had the sister by the same name. It seems that John was known to the high priest, as we've already said. Look at John 18. John 18. You see, we, we normally do not think 
of the disciples and the apostles as being kin to these Pharisees and the high priest and those that were crucifying the Lord. But there was a connection. So it appears. Here again, as we read earlier, we read again here in John 18. Verse 15, And Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did other disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. You see, when we talk about the Lord being uh, captured and taken in to the high priest and taken in for and, and all of that, we talk about Peter denying the Lord, but you ever heard, you hardly ever hear anybody talking about John getting Peter in to see the high priest or into the court that was going on there. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple which was known unto the high priest and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. You know, I hadn't thought of that till just now, but it's very likely if she was keeping the door, she wouldn't let anybody in through the door that she didn't know. Very likely John knew the woman that was keeping the door. And it wouldn't be strange if John knew the woman and the woman knew John and knew that John was a follower of Christ that this woman would also say to Peter, you're a follower of Christ. You see the connection that's coming together in all of this? I find these things fascinating. I hope uh, it's not boring to you. Now you remember John the Baptist. Look in Luke chapter 1. If you remember in studying the Scriptures, the first time we come across the name John is with John the Baptist. And the first time we come across the name John associated with the priestly family is John the Baptist. Notice here in Luke chapter 1. I know you know the story well, but I want to put this together. Luke 1, first of all, in verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Very few people in the Bible are named by the Lord. But the Lord said, Zacharias, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. Verse 59. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came and circumcised the child and they called him Zacharias after 
the, the name of his father. Now remember, Zacharias was a priest. And his mother answered and said, Not so, he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by the, his name. In other words, there's no history in your lineage of anybody called John. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. Look in Acts. Chapter 4. This is where Peter and John were apprehended by the Sanhedrin and the court. Verse 5, and it came to Acts 4 5, and it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. So this name John, who began with the Baptist, we see that uh, the writer of the book is John. He is kin or associated with the priestly family somehow. Evidently there's some distant kin. And that John, the name John is carried on even in the book of Acts with regard to the family of the high priest. Not only that, look in John 18. John 18 Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. How did John know Malchus's name if he wasn't familiar with the family? He knew this servant's name. But notice this in verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? John not only knew Malchus's name, he knew a, a, a kinsman of Malchus that was living in with the priestly family. These are not just incidents. These are facts that show a connection with John with the priestly family. And also in verse 13 of the same chapter, and led him away to Annas first, 
for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. John knew the father-in-law. He knew the son-in-law. He knew the priestly uh, uh, regulation that was going on. And which one was the high priest that year? So there's a lot to do with regard to John and his parentage, his lineage, his brother, his cousins. And John knew about how Jews buried too. Look at John 19, verses 39 through 40. And there came also Nicodemus, which was at the first, came to Jesus by night, and brought in a mixture of myrrh and of aloes, about a hundred pound weight. In other words, that's about a hundred pound weight of embalming fluid, if you wanted to call it that though they just wrapped it around the body. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, well, we don't need to get that. So we see John knew how Jew, Jews buried, so John was a Jew. So we need to keep that in mind as we go further. Well, time's caught up with us. We got some more to learn about John. But sometimes when you hear me preach and me saying something about John being cousins with this and partners with that and knowing the high priest, I wanted you to see there's reason for it. And hopefully it'll help you construct some about what was going on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for, as it were, dropping little handfuls by the way to give us some understanding and make some connections with some of the people in the Scriptures. When we first read the book of Chronicles, it seems like uh, an unbroken list of names. And the more we read, the more we study of that, we begin to see that scarlet thread of the lineage of our Lord. And we thank You that from time to time You give us insight of some of the, the apostles and disciples. And we find that they are men just like us. Sinners in need of a Savior. They were not mystic characters. They were not superhumans. They were not extraordinary men in and of themselves. Just a poor sinner in need of a Savior.
and you use them in mighty ways that the excellency of the power may be of you and not of men. Thank you, our God, for loving us. Thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.